Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blue tack those rejection letters to your bedroom wall. Flat chat is back. And in the latest issue of GP Racing magazine... The Williams team principal, James Vowles, tells us exactly how many F1 teams rejected his job applications. And we ask whether Charles Leclerc should quit Ferrari. Indeed, it's been a month of comings and goings, hirings, movings, quittings, firings, um, hot on the heels of this month's magazine being published. Alpine decided to raid the cupboard under the stairs, bring out the board games and play another round of that venerable game, Spin the P45. Um, Joining me to discuss these and other matters of moment in the Formula One world are, well, let's say uh, you're Rotterdam if you do, Rotterdam if you don't. (laughs) Uh, on a boat somewhere off off the shore of the Low Countries, it's Mark Gallagher. Yeah, very nice to join you. I have to tell you, I'm not off the shore of anywhere. I'm in the centre of Rotterdam, uh, sitting. Oh, in the sorry, marina. I forgot canals and stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, yes, and uh, but also uh, to get here, we started from London, so it's been uh, not really canals to get here, but anyway, uh, centre of Rotterdam and. The local rest, the local supermarket, which I went into a couple of days ago, is a jumbo supermarket. Those who are eagle-eyed watchers of all things Max Verstappen will know that jumbo sponsor Max, or yeah, like still sponsor Max. And um, when you walk into that supermarket, the first thing you're greeted with is a giant display of Max Verstappen and uh, point of sale Red Bull merchandise and uh, and drinks and what have you. So you can't get you can't get away from Max anywhere in the Netherlands. It's just, he is just everywhere. Blimey. And when you consider that um, Jumbo also sponsor a team uh, in the Tour de France and who's, who won it, and uh, it's Jonas Vingegaard, um, Dutch or Belgian or some Flemish extraction. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit with the French about Jonas Vingegaard. I don't really have any interest in him whatsoever, even though he's very good at pedalling a bicycle um, I, I, with the Tadej Pogacar uh, crowd. But um, you would you think there'd be a little bit of 
skinny bloke with a big mouth uh, in a in a yellow jersey somewhere near a display of things? Or did they not have a blood transfusion cabinet? <laughs> I don't think that's one of the services jumbo supermarkets offer. Although I'm sure it may well be being considered. But anyway, Max is writ large across everything. Although, by the way, we'll, we'll we should talk about the jumbo sponsorship in a second. But I'll let you uh, introduce our esteemed colleague. Yeah, speaking to us in high resolution for the first time, it feels, and now now a, a member of the smashed avocado dodging um, home ownership brigade, and with a finely curated background, it has to be said, uh, it's Matt Q. Thank you for noticing the background. However, Codders, as a as a grammar pedant, this will annoy you. So I've got an array for listeners. I've got an array of. Uh, Williams posters decade by decade but if you can see after each decade it's got the apostrophe S as in belonging to the 1970s as opposed to spanning the 1970s which is an egregious punctuation error but there you go thank you yes uh, I'm so glad I've got you small in the frame on my screen so I don't have to look at this because I would be triggered yeah, it's it's irritating irritating I took them home quite excited and then uh, basically uh, while I was they were just put in a box while I was moving. I bought them, I bought frames, unrolled them and, and saw that. And it, it offends me to have them up. But um, yeah, I need to I need to wait to blag some other commemorative posters from other teams and then maybe they can be replaced. You could scan them and Photoshop them out. I mean, I, 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 it, I have been known when I'm walking down the street and I see the grocer's apostrophe, as it's known, on a board somewhere. I've, I've been known to sort of lick my finger and, and rub the chalk out and, and correct it. In actual fact, I can't walk past a sign without doing it. Yeah, yeah. Which is I'm why I've got a yeah. criminal record as long as you're arm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so a, a bit of a subbing pedant now. I think, I think that's partly down to you, isn't it? Every, even no matter what context, it's always fewer... Never, never. Yes. Met. Nevertheless, well, there's there's definitely fewer people working down in Enstone at the moment. Uh, will the last person to leave Enstone uh, switch the lights off on their way out? The team formerly known as, let's get these in the right order, Tolman, Benetton, Renault, Lotus, Renault again, and now Alpine, has had um, many names above the door over the past 40 years. Maybe it's a revolving door, given the number of hirings and firings. Uh, At the moment, it looks like the Renault Group CEO has been the chief wielder of the axe. So I suppose what we've got to ask here is, what's going on in the head of Luca, boom, 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 let me hear say De Mayo? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Dear, oh dear. And to think... To think Ed Strom ticked me off on X this week about uh, running out of material in the writer's strike. If Mr. DeMeo is listening to the podcast, I do apologise for that bastardisation of your name. On to, th- <laughs> on to things, Renault Group. It, it, it's, uh, it was interesting watching the announcements unfold over the last uh, uh, week or so. We'll talk about uh, Pat Fry's departure and move to Williams a little bit later on. But the... Um, it, it struck me there was a lot of hysteria in the Formula One paddock uh, and amongst the media. And I kind of I was wondering about the background to that. We all like people like, you know, Otmar Safnar has been around for a long time. Alan Permain, 34 years at, uh, at Enstone and uh, perhaps less so about Lauren Rossi, the chief executive of Alpine, who's been in the sport for two and a half years and not left. 
a major impact on it other than calling his own team amateurish which wasn't particularly uh, great, a great leadership technique. Uh, but I think the thing that struck me about the changes is that, you know, Luca De Mayo has, it would appear, taken the gloves off. Uh, he is running one of the largest automotive groups in the world. Uh, he has decided to make Alpine the performance brand. Between now and 2030, they plan to launch seven models, seven Alpine models, and... I mean, this is an incredible target. So they're planning to try and achieve 2 billion euros of revenue by, well, in three years' time. And by the end of the decade, 8 billion euros of revenue for Alpine as a brand. Now, this is a a company that, you know, its car sales in many markets don't even register. They're so low. So he's taking that brand from ground zero to making it a serious player in the performance uh, automotive uh, sector. And the marketing of that is through Formula One. Um, So yes, they currently have other sports car programs, which other motorsport programs, which I do wonder about the value of uh, in terms of the costs and the benefit of it. But Formula One is is the pinnacle of their motorsport marketing. And he is clearly unimpressed and underwhelmed by the team's performance and he doesn't like he doesn't like where they are he wants to see them move forward he's impatient and that may be that may be a, the problem is that we all know that you can't be too impatient about you know achieving success in formula 1 because it does take time however he would not be wrong to say that that team seems stuck in the midfield and he's been watching teams like McLaren and Aston Martin make great strides never mind you know the the big three Red Bull Ferrari and and Mercedes so for Alpine De Mayo is seeing a company that he needs to be something of a jewel in the crown of the Renault group uh, kind of languishing and he will also be very aware of the fact that both Ford and Audi are arriving into Formula One in 2026. So he wants to see some results. And by all accounts, the meetings that took place in Paris with the team's leadership left him feeling that there wasn't really anything being offered that gave him calls for optimism. It was all pushing, kicking the kicking the can down the road. It's going to take years. It's it's uh, you know it's five year plans. It's 100 race plans. It's uh, going to take time, and and he wants to see something a little bit more uh, concrete. And I, I think the fact that Aston Martin started this season so strongly, and the fact that McLaren then surged into prominence over the last month, will have suggested to someone like DeMeo that actually, contrary to popular belief, it is possible to make a step forward in Formula One with the right structure, the right people, the right innovations, the right upgrades. And, you know, that that for me is probably the background to everything that we have, uh, everything that we've seen happen in terms of these, these changes. What What is really quite striking, uh, going back to talk about Laurent Rossi, is that Laurent Rossi, as head of the Alpine Automotive Group, had Formula One under his wing. Um, and... 
his his movement sideways into special projects, which is a the kind of a uh, the ejector button in an executive career. Uh, you know, it's the ejector seat. When you're moved into special projects, it means you really need to start sharing your CV with other organisations. So that move into special projects means that DeMeo has decided that Rossi is not the man for the job at Alpine as an automotive business. So this is a this isn't about Formula One. It's about the overall delivery on Alpine as an automotive business. And Formula One obviously has come under him. I think my I don't know Lauren Rossi, never met him. Um, but one comment I would make was that quite early on in the piece, I was surprised at the amount of time that he was spending on Formula One because actually he had a big job to do, which was to drive that automotive brand forward. And, you know, most good automotive bosses who have a Formula One team within their business turn up at maybe three or four races a year. Uh, just leave it to the team. Just delegate leave it to the team and uh, i felt that he probably well he seemed to spend the optics were that he spent a lot of time uh attending uh formula one events and meetings there were a couple of occasions i remember where photographs were shared of team principal meetings and alpine had two people there so they had otmar and laurent rossi and again that suggested a degree of command and control and a lack of a lack of empowerment to the team just to get on with the job. But with him going and then with Otmar, I think Otmar's position has seemed shaky for a while. Um, I'm not sure that Otmar was ever given a real chance to to be team principal at, at Alpine. I mean, he had the title, but there seemed to be a lot of people around him um, and talking about very, at a very senior level, um, you know, be, it'll be interesting to get his reflections on his time there. Uh, I don't get the impression that he was allowed to to crack on with the job. Um, and the Alan Permain uh, uh, departure is an interesting one. Again, we'll perhaps find out in the fullness of time the background to that. Any anyone who's been in a Formula One team for thirty four years is probably reaching a point where they want themselves to do something else. So it may well be that. It may well be that Alan, Alan, having had, had having had an awareness that there were more changes coming, uh, I'm not saying he volunteered to to leave, but it may well be that he decided that this timing was right for him, as much as you know Renault Group deciding to change the the management structure. But what what I do feel that's important is not what the media or the Twitter sphere or fans think about these changes and the rights and wrongs of them. It's what do the people who work in Endstone think about these changes? And by all accounts, the hysteria that we saw in certain media coverage is not shared by everyone in Endstone. I think there is a sense that this time there is a determination to change the, tra the trajectory that the team is on and to try and, and lift it up. And let's not forget, all of this has come just five weeks after they sold, after Renault Group and DeMeo sold a 24% stake in the team to the Ryan Reynolds-led uh, investor consortium. So really in, in a very short, very short period of time, we've seen uh, a 
complete change in ownership structure with a very important uh, investor group coming in with a primary focus in the United States, which will become a key market for Alpine in the future. So we've seen a new ownership structure. We've now seen a major clear out in senior leadership. And to summarize, I think it's DeMeo pressing the reset button and trying to put in, trying to put in place something that's going to drive proper change within Alpine to make them a a, com, a contender as opposed to a participant. Turn it off and turn it back on again. Uh, it's a classic IT tactic. Um, now, Matt Q, without wishing to uh, do any spoilers for the column for the next issue, which you've just filed, you were on the ground in Belgium and saw a little bit of the noise. It was quite interesting in the week before. Can you can you see noise codders? Yes, especially when it's coming from uh, websites. The the sound waves become visual. I do, do you remember do you remember when iTunes on the Mac used to have a visualizer button where you could have that, this hippie sort of um, on-screen swirly patterns like a lava lamp effect along with the music. Those were the days, no longer. Steve Jobs and his successors decided to get rid of them. Anyhow, uh, regardless of the laws of physics, which we've just driven a coach and horses through, not not uh, literally, of course, at the beginning of Belgian Grand Prix week, there were a few quotes from Otmar that were clearly planted by him in the media and he was very keen to emphasise that um, he'd had a handshake deal with Luca Di Meo about the 100 race timescale. And it seemed to me that that kind of was the issue, wasn't it, as Mark just alluded, that um, the senior management wanted faster progress and Otmar and perhaps other people were saying, well, you know, we agreed to this time scale and um, I, I, ca- I kind of changed the laws of physics, Captain, as um, the chap who failed to switch the, star- the Starship Enterprise off and on again uh, used to say to Captain Kirk. Yeah, on, on the ground, it was quite amusing. So I, was, I have a, a, a friend who I've known for a few years at Alpine and they were saying, um, uh, speaking to him about the Rossi departure and they're saying, oh, we only found out about five minutes before you. And then as we were speaking, this person goes, oh, I've got a meeting at 12.45. We've all been summoned. It's urgent. So I was like, oh, oh, right. And then uh, sure enough, uh, uh, was it local time? 13.52, the Alpine press release came out. So not even on the hour, uh, but conveniently eight minutes before eight minutes before Williams announced that uh, poached Pat Fry. But yeah, Otmar and Pemain gone. I, I have to agree a lot with Mark said, you know, Rossi is continuing that powerful French person thing a bit like Emmanuel Macron of being a magpie and just attracted to shiny things he was very sort of um, interventionist in the in the F1 team and and obviously you know absolutely annihilating team morale by setting up that interview after Miami uh, with Canal Plus to call call everyone amateurs and dilettantes and whatnot Um, but I have to say I'm I'm a little more sort of baffled by by the decision making as it's understood these are uh, Safnauer and Pemain have left by mutual consent, which is sort of a good thing because if management was sacking them based on this season, i.e. two double DNFs, one being a um, the, the late safety card madness in Australia and, and basically Otmar handing in his notice after the double DNF in, in Hungary, that'd be, that'd be stupid because that's driver's fault, whatever. However, you know, they set clear targets of repeating fourth place in the championship, closing to Red Bull, Mercedes, Ferrari. They haven't done that. 
as Mark says, they've got this new investment coming in and, and you know, why Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney have done this is off the back of the success of Welcome to Wrexham, where you can't have Welcome to Endstone and it being four series deep and going, well, this year we're going to do the narrative of how we went from fifth to fifth, like last season when we went to fifth to fifth and a season before. So there needs to be some sign of advancing. However, if, as it goes, they have summoned Otmar and Alan Permain to Paris to go can we speed up timelines? And they have said no. What you're overlooking there is a vast amount of experience. Pemaine, who, who's been there when Renault won world titles as an engine manufacturer and then they wanted more exposure. So they came in as a works team and, you know, 2005, 2006 won titles. And then he was there when it went bankrupt and, you know, had to be bought off his knees because Kimi Raikkonen had, you know, one of the most lucrative contracts in, in F1 history. He's seen the cycles and... Otmar has been there as well and seen the cycles of Racing Point and um, where he's been before that. And I think, yeah, it's it's very very foolhard or foolish, sorry, when you uh, to to go. No success can come overnight. Okay, Aston Martin and McLaren have made big in-season surges, but Mercedes and Ferrari haven't closed the gap to Red Bull one iota, and that is partly because they're so hemmed in by the cost cap now. So you know. If, if those guys who've got eight, you know, in the case of Mercedes have eight constructor titles, can't make inroads, then it's pretty bullshit of Alpine to think they can. However, I would caveat that by saying, because the cost cap is so restrictive nowadays, Alan Permain, for example, with his 34 years at Endstone, knows how Endstone is. And Endstone, Aston Martin have the new factory, McLaren have the new wind tunnel. Endstone's had its like sort of, mini redevelopment in recent years and it's obviously not taken it to a world championship team and we'd like the capex finance debate perhaps someone coming in from outside who isn't precious about the the front wing design department is the second door on the left someone who's willing to bring a fresh ideas and relocate everything and make it absolutely more efficient perhaps that can yield success but for that plan to be enacted you know there needs to be a new timeline, another 100 races, another five years. So your success doesn't necessarily arrive any sooner. Perhaps it, was a, it wasn't, we're led to believe, like a personal issue. I think Luca de Bayer quite, or had a lot of time for, to, for Safnauer. Mark, Mark's shaking his head there, maybe he dis, uh, disagrees. No, I agree with he's, not, oh, he's nodding now. Yeah. I'm agreeing well, with I, I, I don't think, Safnauer's not like a Toto Wolf or, um, or maybe an Andreas Stella, a hard taskmaster who's really going to motivate you. I think he's a bit of a kill with kindness, put his arm around the shoulder of the workforce and maybe Demeo wanted something different to that. However, I think it's created a scenario and Codders, it has been known for me to be, you know, uh, a know-nothing master of hindsight. So allow me to look into, look into the I, future. I, I don't think I've read that anywhere. No, not not in the most uh, prestigious of titles. I, I, I thought you'd evicted that quote that was living rent-free in your head. Uh, apparently not, apparently not. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, what I've used my prestigious back page column <laughs> that you've handed to me to write is that basically, because of the turnover, if you include a bitable Alan Prost, um, Bukowski, whatever, you know, we're counted up and it's like 12 senior figures that have gone in the last uh, five years, I think. An enormous amount of turnover that, you know, you go from one plan to another, you go from plan A to plan one to plan X to plan, you know, whatever. There's there's no consistency. People don't know what they're doing. So the next person that comes in, 
is either going in with their eyes open knowing that they might last 18 months have their reputation damaged not be able to enshrine their ideas or is they going in thinking yeah absolutely I'm the one they're going to stick by and maybe that suggests an element of naivety so that means the next chapter the next leader is possibly either sort of misguided or a bit Machiavellian and that's neither neither wants to galvanise a workforce to sort of go to toe with the leader so I think it's um, pretty pretty poor t- poor times for Alpine at the minute it makes some sort of sense from the showbiz perspective you've got um, Hollywood moving in as investors there's talk of doing a sort of welcome to Endstone stroke welcome to Wrexham type show and maybe they're just clearing house before filming begins you know how any long running soap opera when there's a change of producer um, time served members of the cast begin to quake with fear knowing that a broom's going to sweep through it and stuff happens like how many times did the producer of the bill change and imminently there would be a a, a, a firebomb set off at Sunhill Nick that would require an entirely new set and several people to disappear. Think of Emmerdale and the random plane crash. Uh, Mrs Codling watches um, Home and Away and periodically, you know, there'll, there'll be a random shooting or... The, something weird and random and various people will will disappear and new characters will be brought in maybe this is just a a way of ensuring that um welcome to enston starts with a settled cast before the axe gets wielded between series in future if if i might also add on alpine as well basically you know lance lawrence stroll's ambition is to make lance stroll world champion and that only comes if he can build a car that's basically half a second faster than Everything it's else. It's a good thing because, he's not holding his breath, isn't it? Well, quite. But the, 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 basically, the only you know, to put it flippantly, the only way Lance Stroll becomes world champion is if Aston Martin build a car that's significantly faster than everyone else, so he can beat them by a t- small margin. Well, that's what Alpine has to do now because you know Otmar is or Safna is team principal, Pemain, Enstone, Enstone race team, and as we now know that. You know, Otmar, one of his final acts was going around at fellow team principals to try and get gather some support for engine equalisation uh, because the, the Viri powertrain is 30 brake horsepower down on rivals. Um, and that's despite it always catching on fire last year because they thought they could chase performance and add in reliability later. Well, they've got reliability, but not got the performance they stride for. That's locked in until 2025. So even if, you know, they find a silver bullet, there's overnight changes, they you know hit the ground, but any cliche you want to throw at it, they're still going to be hamstrung for the next two seasons. So they don't, you know, just because... Uh, they announce the the resignations and then and then Gasly gets second place and and Ocon makes up like eight places in the race. It doesn't validate anything. One final note about this: What did we make of Alan Prost? Who obviously you know he 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 left um, under a bit of a cloud and clearly it was he didn't like Lauren Rossi at all and he was straight out with the knife in Le Keep to talk about the Dunning Kruger effect and these people who come and. Um, on the team shirt and sit, like to sit on the pit wall when all they've got is a few MBAs. Um, uh, Mark's got opinions about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, on, on the thing we must now call X, uh, you were uh, relishing in providing the definition. <laughs> it's only because I keep thinking, when I listen to the news pretty well every day, on almost any topic that the Dunning-Kruger effect is all around us in the world of <laughs> politics and leadership globally, nationally, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, for those of you 
for those who are not aware, the Dunning-Kruger effect is when a person's lack of knowledge uh, about a certain area, whatever that topic is, could be Formula One, could be running a country, where a person's lack of knowledge uh, causes them to overestimate their own ability or competence. And that's very much what Alan Prost was saying about Lauren Rossi. He took the, took the view that Rossi knew nothing about Formula One, didn't understand it, um, yet thought that he could somehow uh, come in, take the leadership of Alpine and didn't need any support or help from a, uh, you know, a crusty four times world champion. Well, the thing is that the way in which that whole thing was handled with Alain Prost, again, to me, in the way that Alain was dismissed from the team, was was an indication of a certain way that Rossi was going to do business, in, including in the public domain, which was not correct. And... You know, we live in a world where things have to be, you know, if, you, if you're serious about being a good leader in a modern environment, you have to make decisions and handle them in the correct way. Now, the correct way to dispense with Alain Prost would have been to to do exactly what Renault Group have just done with Otmar and Alain, Alain Permain, and be able to issue a statement saying, you know, by mutual agreement, you know, both parties uh, wish each other the best and Alain Prost, you know, wishes Alpine the best. Instead of that, it became a public spat and very unseemly. And that was the beginning of the Laura Rossi uh, tenure at, uh, at Alpine. So... Prost's interview in Lake Keep, I think it was, was he put he put well to say he pulled no punches is an understatement. He took a flamethrower to uh, <laughs> Laura Rossi's uh, uh, Laura Rossi's uh, tenure. He uh, he didn't hold back at all. And I think you know if you if you just if we step away from a moment and look at from a you know imagine that we're sitting in Renault he- head office in Paris and we're. We're look. We're at the center of everything that has just happened with the Formula One program with Alpine. You know, you have this, as you say, Matt, constant changes of leadership. You have an icon of the sport in France, Alain Prost. You know, two years ago, coming out, you know, quite aggressively about the way that he was uh, mishandled by Rossi at the beginning of his tenure, and then coming out again now to say pretty well to say, well, I told you so. You know, this is a guy who doesn't know anything about Formula One, and this is the result. And and more than that, to take a real, um, take a really strong view on the fact that Renault don't understand how to run a Formula One team, and to put that in black and white in France's, uh, you know, premier print sports media. And I read what Alain had to say, and it's hard to disagree with with his comments because Formula One teams owned by car manufacturers have a long history of failure. And whether it was Ford and Jaguar, whether it was BMW when they split with Williams, when it was Honda when they tried to go on along, whether when it was Toyota for goodness sake, you know, they all failed to deliver championship winning success. And in the case of uh, both BMW and Honda, they won a single Grand Prix, as Alpine have now done. So if you stick at it long enough and you employ good enough drivers and, you know, so- sooner or later you will have that outlier race that you can perhaps uh, nick 
nick the win in whether it's uh, you know like like Kubica in uh, Montreal or Button in Hungary, um, and then Ocon again. So in Hungary, so you, you see that car manufacturers have a bad track record in Formula One unless they partner with a racing team. And I think one of the really interesting aspects of Mercedes' involvement in Formula One is that after a number of years of sort of going it alone in 2010, 11 and 12 under Ross Braun, when they when Toto came in with Nicky Lauda, they sold a chunk of equity to Toto and Nicky. And, and indeed, that equity has been further diluted now with Sir Jim Ratcliffe coming in. So Mercedes is owned by three equal shareholders and it's run very much at arm's length from from mercedes they just let total wolf get on with the job and he demands that and he demands it and he gets it and he demands it and he gets it because he has a proven track record of delivery so the mercedes model is in many ways is the one that works and the interesting thing is if you look at endstone you know when was endstone it's at its most successful it it was at its most successful when it had an entrepreneur like Flavio Briatori running the team. And again, Flavio is a little, um, I mean, Flavio and Toto couldn't be more different personalities, but they have some commonality in that the only way that a Flavio Briatori or a Toto Wolf is going to run a Formula One team is if they have complete authority to crack on with the job and deliver uh, accordingly. And you need team principles here, given that level of responsibility. When team principles are undermined, when they're constantly having to run to head office for approval, when they are then subject to regular changes of leadership, so team principals are in and out, you just lose you just lose so much momentum and so much uh, uh, capability. So there's so much uh, to to, say, to there's so much really to say that what Alain uh, put in that interview is is right. Honestly speaking, I think DeMeo. Um, is trying hard to to do what needs to be done in order to to change Alpine's trajectory. I don't think he's looking for overnight success. I'm sure he's not looking for overnight success. But I think what he is definitely looking for is perhaps season-to-season progress. And I think if someone was to sit down in front of DeMeo today and say, look, Formula One's now too complex, and because of the budget cap, you know, to be honest... (laughs) we're not even sure we will make progress in five years. I think he would question the entire program. Um, so that's not happened. He's, he's, not, he's not yet questioning the entire program, but what he is doing is he's questioning the ability of the team and its current leadership to deliver the year-on-year improvements that he wants to see. And I think if, if the, view, the, the general view now is that it's too difficult to win in Formula One, that's a really major alarm for all of the car manufacturers, not just for for DeMeo, because it's, um, you know, and that's obviously a bigger picture question to discuss. Well, we'll see what comes about in the in the coming months. There are two things that I find fascinating and amusing about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, one is that various people have actually taken the trouble to plot it. So literally uh, there is an, an inverse ratio between uh, a person's IQ and their tendency to understand their competence in anything, i.e. the stupider you are, the more likely you are to um, vastly 
overestimate your competence. And various people have plotted it as a graph. The other thing which I find hilarious is that Dunning and Kruger were inspired to do the research by a news story involving a botched robbery of a bank or a shop or something where the man had gone in with his face covered in lemon juice because he'd read that lemon juice was a component in invisible ink and if he coated his face in lemon juice he'd be invisible to the security cameras <laughs> i just uh, just amusing myself the other day on the dunning kruger effect i noticed that in the middle of january search hits for german actress dying kruger on google trends like tripled so i just wonder if there's a few typos out there thought that's amusing a diane kruger effect, kruger effect <laughs> yeah. if you look on google trends there's a massive spike in the middle of january when alan prost went to the press <laughs> Anyway, moving on from Diane Kruger to other stars, uh, uh, <laughs> French stars, Monegasque stars, um, the cover star of our latest issue. Um, yeah, two podiums recently for Charles Leclerc, but the truth is Ferrari are way off Red Bull's pace. Um, so is everybody else, to be frank. Um, but it's coming up to contract time, which of course is when you know, loyalties can become unloyalties. Uh, Ferrari like to draw parallels between Leclerc and Gilles Villeneuve, and we delve into those this month, uh, including the fact that Gilles nearly left Ferrari for McLaren uh, in 1982 and was allegedly in discussions to go again uh, before he unfortunately met his maker. Um, Alex Kalanorkas has done the cover story of... um, this issue. Our art editor Frank Foster has uh, very kindly provided a graphic treatment that enabled me to include a coded reference to the 80s children's game show Blockbusters uh, in the cover line. Matt Q, your thoughts on Charles Leclerc? Should he, in the words of The Clash, stay or should he go? I asked myself this question by looking at the alternatives. So if and when Hamilton retires, I think Mercedes based on current form, is more likely to go for Lando Norris. However, perhaps there is a turn of events where Lando Norris goes to Red Bull to partner Max Verstappen. Depending on how those play out, McLaren, upwardly mobile at the minute, is an option for Leclerc. But the only other... I, I, I don't see Red Bull or Mercedes going for Leclerc as a driver, and I think that's because he is rapid... And his racecraft is good, but I don't think he's. I think he's in a, a category ever so slightly below Verstappen and and Russell because as it's a horrible, but as as like a naturally talented driver, it's a horrible cliche that is. I don't think he's quite a level for them on in terms of intellect and how that can drive the team forward. So then you look at the alternatives, which is maybe a mega payday at Sauber slash Audi. Well what you hear about them well you look at Sauber they're finally operating up to the cost cap now they've had some investment from Ingolstadt but they've made zero progress this season and the rumours are and Christian Hormer's smirks and press conferences suggest that Audi are months behind Red Bull powertrains months behind Mercedes with the 2026 engine regs so basically that that's not a competitive step forward so maybe you are better off staying at Ferrari just for a dearth of alternative opportunities. Perhaps, you know, Alonso retirement, there are various other holes he could go. I just don't think at the minute, I think teams would make a play for another driver. I, I Norris, who knows what Piastri stock's doing by then. I think Leclerc is mega, 
But I think the ideal Ferrari is Leclerc and Carlos Sainz combined. So someone who's mega quick and someone with the brain space of Carlos Sainz to tell his pit wall they're being stupid mid-race and to change the strategy. Um, and then, so, but then you look at the case of staying put, you know, uh, there's a bit of a brain drain going on at Ferrari at the minute. Laurent Mecky, sporting director, team principal now, at, oh, at, will become team principal Alvatore. He has left. David Sanchez has gone to McLaren and the team is still without a technical director because Mattia Pinotto was filling a, a, a joint role. And the one person they have hired is uh, Mercedes performance director, Loic Serra. Well, he doesn't join in 2025. So there looks like to be a plateau. The other issue is, okay, from Spain, they introduced new side pods to sort of try and and go towards a Red Bull route. But Ferrari are persisting sort of with their with their um, side pod car concept, bath, the sort of bathtub style. And ever since quite early in 2022, when the Red Bull was very fat compared to the Ferrari, people were saying that the performance ceiling of that concept is, is lower than the Red Bull. And Ferrari came out the blocks closer to that ceiling. So they had less room to develop within that. And it seems they've maxed out there. And that's why, you know, but, but and th- that's why this year they're not as competitive. And also they're, they're spending time making the car more benign. So it's more predictable and looks after its tyres better rather than chasing, you know, pole position after pole position like last year. And then the, while, you know, Ferrari's uh, or Leclerc's not getting into the league and his engine's catching on fire every other race, which is a step forward. As soon as there's pressure which Ferrari haven't been under anything like as much pressure for race wins like they were in Hungary last year or, or Silverstone with a safety car. But when there is pressure, there has to be that driver negotiation over strategy and their slow pit stops, they are fouling a lot. Like just because I think there has been generally less media attention on Ferrari this year, but reading Alex's article and he just lists off the sort of calamities and there's still a list as long as your arm from 20, the first half of 2023. So operationally, they've not improved. And they bring those things together that if they do change car concept, then they're two years behind the learning of Red Bull. And suddenly that sort of 21 year record of Ferrari between titles, it, that's looming large on the horizon. So that's, that's the reason for Leclerc not to stay, but he can be a poster child. And I, I just look at other alternatives down the pit lane and it's ever so slightly frying pan to fire unless Norris goes to Red Bull and, and perhaps, perhaps there's a Mercedes seat on offer. It's quite something when Ferrari is your least worst option, <laughs> you know, for for, for, for Charles um, to stay. It's it's extraordinary, really. That again, I think for the three of us, uh, you know, watching this sport and seeing how careers develop and the ebb and flow of careers. Charles has gone from the golden boy at Ferrari, you know, that kind of rocket ship trajectory of his career um and here we are in the middle of 2023 you know his fifth season and we're wondering what he should do next and it all looks a little bit if i may say it looks a little bit like a traditional ferrari driver story where you come in with great hope and and then it just starts to slightly sour and you know charles has made some driving errors over the years plus the team you know, apart from the fact that the team strategically, operationally and personnel wise leaves a bit to be desired. So basically every aspect of the team leaves a bit to be desired. You then have, you know, Charles with those those few driving errors. And actually you you make a really important point, Matt, which 
it's about intellect and about a driver's ability to step into that team leadership role. And it is a leadership role. I mean, let's let's be clear, drivers still can have a significant input into the dynamic of a team. What's acceptable, what's not acceptable. You know, how hard do you buying the table when your pit stop goes wrong for the third time? How hard do you buying the table when this latest strategy hasn't worked out? It's it's the way that you drive the the team. And it is it is shocking, you know, that he's in his fifth year at Ferrari. And and we're of course saying all of this off the back of him, you know, he beat beat Sergio Perez into second place in the drivers' championship last year. You know, he won three Grand Prix. Uh, I mean that doesn't look doesn't look dreadful by any stretch of the imagination. But there I think this year has been such a shocker because again going back to leadership there's been another change of leadership at ferrari um so here's another common denominator with with teams that are struggling they have changes of leadership um and frederick vassar has come in with you know there, there was some something of a palace coup about uh about him coming in with, uh, you know, by all, by all accounts, Charles lobbying uh, for that change. And actually, nothing has changed. In fact, if anything, you'd say there's been a, a degree of stagnation this year and things have gotten worse. And the brain drain has to then be a major concern because Ferrari struggled to attract the best people anyway. Uh, in my view, over the I'm taking I'm taking on a long term view. They struggle to attract the best people, um, and if they're now losing some of their best people, um, that's a major concern because they've got to then go through again the recruitment process and restructuring and reorganisation. And by the way, for every name that you change at the top of a team in a senior role, a sporting director or a senior engineer or whatever whatever role you change. There is a cascading effect because the dynamic changes within that part of the team, and there has to be a whole new, a whole new kind of resetting. You you just don't just unplug one person and plug a new person in. There is always a set of changes that then take place uh, around that. So, I agree with Matt's summary. You look at Charles Leclerc in relation to Ferrari, and you look at what the alternatives are. Um, he can definitely go and earn a great deal of money driving elsewhere and with the likes of Audi coming in yeah he could take a big paycheck but I think for Charles to go from Ferrari to Audi would be a little bit like Eddie Irvine going from Ferrari to Jaguar it's just a pension uh, uh sorry from Ferrari yeah from Ferrari to Jaguar can I have that in writing please <laughs> okay <laughs> you know it's it is a it would be a step down for, from him. And actually, he hasn't proven himself to be able to develop Ferrari, and that's a long-established team. So what are the, what's the opportunity for him to develop what will effectively be a new team under, under Audi? And uh, I, do, I don't want to break any confidences uh, with what I'm about to say, but I've had a very close insight into the, the issues that face Alfa Romeo Sauber. It's a team that is rooted in accepting uh, its midfield position. And it doesn't 
in many ways doesn't know how to get out of that because actually the ambition isn't even there to get out of that. And the structure of the organization isn't a first-class structure. And therefore, the performance of the organization isn't first-class. So it's a team that um, Audi, Audi will need to completely reset that organization in order to deliver their success in Formula One. Otherwise, everything that we just talked about in relation to Renault and DeMeo uh, and Enstone, we will be having exactly the same conversation about Ingolstadt and Hinville and Audi and Formula One in five years' time. We'll be in the 2028 season. Audi will have been in Formula One for two years and they will not have been achieving anything. And the guys at Volkswagen Audi Group will be banging the table saying, you know, what do, what do we have to do? Who do we need to get in? What's the magic bullet? So actually, we, with whether you're talking Ferrari, whether you're talking Renault, or whether you're talking Audi, it's actually all a similar story about getting structures and people and processes in place that deliver success for you. Ferrari don't have that in place at the present time. And uh, Charles Leclerc, unfortunately, is being sort of dragged down in the vortex of that. And he, he is by all accounts, not the man to turn it around. Very quick, the- very, 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 quick, very quick racing driver, but he's not yet a leader of a team. And at the age of 25, if he hasn't developed those characteristics, he's probably never going to. Yeah, he's no Alonso, is he? Um, apropos <clears throat> staff changes and people being cleared out, uh, one of my favourite quotes on that subject is the Hollywood screenwriter Lorenzo Semple Jr., best known for uh, authoring various bits of the bat- 60s Batman TV series, um, said, um, whenever a project is deemed to be failing, a human sacrifice is often required. And he, he made this comment uh, off the back of getting the gig to write or rewrite the Flash Gordon film when um, Nicholas Rogue, the director of The Man Who Fell to Earth and various other things, was fired from it, uh, along with his screenwriter and the producers brought in a whole new crowd. And the guy apparently Sample had had this done to him many times. So it was sort of, OK, well, you know, some sometimes you're the nail sometimes you're the hammer anyhow onto another team which has had its fair share of changes and um people being brought in as leaders and then bringing in their own people to work underneath them and then all those people being cleared out uh, when they're cleared out um williams uh, hit the 800 grand prix mark at the Hungarian Grand Prix. They were hoping to do it at Silverstone, but there was a rather inconvenient cancellation earlier in the year. Uh, We thought we'd mark that with a little bit of a package of features. And um, Williams now, team looking quite stable compared with their neighbours on the other side of Oxford. Um, The main element of the package is a long interview, as we call it, with James Vowles, who's been at the helm since pretty much the start of the year. Um, Well known for being... Valtteri, it's James, head of strategy at Mercedes, but he basically was a pioneer of strategy uh, at BAR Honda, as it was in the 90s, where, as he admits, he applied to every team on the grid and got rejected by all of them. Uh, Apart from BAR Honda, who liked the cut of his jib, and uh, he eventually got a job there. Um, He's a very interesting guy. He's obviously competitive and, in his own words, tenacious and you know, as he reveals in the interview, you know, he's done his fair share of long hours back in the days when you did 
tests on the back of races and you were working pretty much 24-7. So he's he's used to working hard and he's obviously used to strategy as applied to project management. That's like setting a clear objective and mapping out how to get there. So I suppose the other thing, Matt, is that he, he he's becoming quite visible in the media, he's often wheeled out to speak. And that's because he's kind of very cerebral and his vocal delivery is a little bit like the shipping forecast. So he's kind of quite calming, isn't he? And you can see how he's he's having, an, he's, he's a lot less Latin than perhaps Jost Capito was at the helm of that team. And he seems to be bringing a sort of orderly calm to things. Yeah, it all feeds back into his strategy role, which wasn't, you know, as he worked up the ranks at Mercedes, that didn't mean sitting on the pit wall and dictating lap 34 change to change to a scrub set of hearts. It was, um, you know, looking after the wider, wider group. And actually I had a sit down interview with him in spa last weekend. And he said, basically where's the effect of the reason you see me so visible in the media is because I'm getting a narrative out there. And that is at the moment, the capex, the infrastructure, because, you know, Doralton that owns Williams ultimately has put his faith in vows but that is an investment company and it has a board and so he must deliver to them a certain timeline whether it's five years or a hundred races to win that well that's not what he's interested in but it's it's progress in five years and he, he said you know I'm not looking for a millisecond of lap time this year if it has any detrimental effect to Williams's future that's a long-term thing so when he's in the media and I agree he speaks brilliantly it's because he's trying to sort of um, you know, persuade opinion and put pressure on the lawmakers because the the two examples that he's given with the state of Williams is do you remember under Paddy Lowe when they missed the first test? And that's because the car wasn't built in time. Well, usually there's a computer to go, that component for the front wing is arriving from this, you know, manufacturer, blah, 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 on that date and we can fit it to the car that date and then blah, blah, blah. That is an analogue process at Williams. So, Frankly, it's a miracle where it's only happened once in the past six seasons that the car's been late for testing, which is so complex. The other thing is uh, he mentioned is uh, he's been working his way around all the different departments at, at Grove, sort of bit by bit. Not as quick as he would like, but that's because he's been to all the races to sort of dip in and out of the strategy meetings and whatever. And he's at, in the production office and goes, I'll oh, have a look around there. And there's this enormous machine. He says it's like the size of the Williams motorhome. And he goes to uh, goes to uh, a colleague. What's that? And they go, Oh, it's from the Ming Dynasty. And uh, <laughs> a that says about how old it is. And then he goes, What is it? It's an etching machine. And he goes, Oh, this one in Williams. It's about the size of the motorhome. We had one at Mercedes. It's about the size of a coffee table. And that says how far Williams has, has got to come. And when you talk about, you know, what Audi are piling resources into, whether it's scattergun or not but the much more concerted efforts from Aston Martin and McLaren, none of this is necessarily to make Williams a championship contender. It's to enable it to keep pace. It's coming from that far behind. But I have to say, if someone's selling me that vision, Vowles is pretty convincing. Like I think my three signings of the season are Nico Hulkenberg for you know, his, or I suppose Alonso, but, but Andrea Stella and Vowles, those two team principals have just got it's a horrible cliche but an x factor about them and you know you look at one of the high profile alpine departures we didn't mention earlier is pat fry who was who vows said he singled out in january started approaching him and then sort of late april fry decided that he was gonna sort of 
go back on his words of ours, which was I'm happy to stay at Enstone, which coincidentally is around the time Rossi was calling him and his colleagues an amateur in the press. So there you go. That's what, you know, you're, you're when I talk about buttering team morale, but he's gone there. That is a, a coup. And he says, Fry is not necessarily here to, because he's the best technical director who's going to give me the best lap time. It's because he's a great project manager who can sort of organise everything. And then Williams has said that below him, you will then have a technical director in like the Dan Fallows mould, Aston Martin, who is a very, very successful number two who's looking to break out and take the lead in a role like Fallows was at Newey. And then they're going to have a structure underneath because he said at the minute, it's like, it's like Williams is on crutches because there's so many voids that the limited leadership structure are having to fill at the minute. But that's what he wants to recruit for. And all of it, sounds absolutely pragmatic this is not uh you know when bruno famine the the new vice president of alpine motorsport is saying he was in a spa press conference last weekend sort of defending the alpine turnover and he goes you know oh no it's all part of phase two of the plan and we're going what's phase two of the plan bruno and he's going we haven't decided yet like (laughs) whereas vows in his head has it mapped out so clearly it seems like dalton aren't you know as as we may be suspected of talk, talk about previous podcasts. Then it doesn't seem like they're trying to make a quick buck out of this during the Netflix height, uh, a height of success. So Williams has such a long way to come back from. And yes, okay, they're the, yeah, at times the sixth, seventh fastest rather than tenth this season. But uh, they've got a long way to come. But I've, I've sort of he, he sells it really well. If you're an investor, a sponsor, uh, a, a major you know, technical player at another team. I think, yeah, this is worth my time having having this this round of talks with Vows. Yeah, because he talks about the importance uh, in terms of the cultural shift. Because I, I said to him, you know, there, there's obviously the, the media and an element of the, the fan base have a very fixed idea of what's going wrong at Williams. And there's a lot to talk about culture this and culture that. Um you know, how do you actually change that or identify what needs to change? And he was very specific in saying it culture doesn't change because I say it has to change. It has to change because everyone buys into it and all the parts of the organization come up. And and one of the one of the tenets of his um of his of his reorganization is he he wants them to stop thinking about the next race or living from race to race. He wants them to be thinking about the season after next, as well as next season, as well as the next race. And he said, you know, it's, it's difficult because I, I, when you get slapped in the face every two weeks, because that's what our performance is, uh, it's very hard to think about the future, but you need to get yourself into that mindset. Yeah, it's been interesting to uh, see the turnaround Williams since James arrived and you know, as we are recording this podcast, Williams are currently seventh in the Constructors uh, Championship, which means that the team in front of them are the team we've just spent the first half of the podcast talking about, which is Alpine, <laughs> which is a, a very, very large automotive group. And Williams are owned by a private investment fund in New York. So it's a, they've had a good, they've had actually a, a pretty optimistic first half of the season when you look at uh, Alex Albon's three point scoring uh, finishes um, the Logan Sargent recruitment as a driver is perhaps for another day but the point is that 
James has come in there with, as he says in the in the feature, he, he has a vision of what excellence looks like because he's been at Mercedes. Um, he has spent two decades, over two decades, at Brackley with that team in its various iterations, which in itself would be just such a fantastic education to see, you know, as again he talks about in the feature, the, the British-American racing sort of Adrian Reynard, uh, Craig Pollock era, through to Dave Richards, who he seemed to learn a great deal from, which is which is uh, not surprising. Dave Richards being one of the better leaders in in motorsport. It's a shame that he never did stay in Formula One for very long. Um, and then through the Honda era, and then into Braun, and and then Total Wolf. So he's had a he's been a, an incredible university of Formula One in terms of leadership and structures and what works and what doesn't work. Clearly a very smart guy. Um, he comes across well. Uh, I, I find his choice of words, you know, choice of words interesting. He He's so clearly a, a technical guy. And um, you know, even the vocabulary he uses at times, he, he comes from a quite, it's a very cerebral kind of technical mindset. Everything's very ordered. Everything's very strategic. There's a problem. There's a problem to be solved. This is how we have to do it. Um, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, so there's going to be a phased process of of getting the team where it needs to get to. Um, and of course, unlike the leadership at Alpine, he doesn't have to turn everything around overnight or even over a season because Doralton uh, understand apparently understand the length of time it'll take to turn a Williams around. Williams is in that slightly fortunate position where almost anything James Valls does at the moment, he can't really go wrong because, I mean, short of, of course, not turning up with the car, but <laughs> the, the, the reality is that there's, there are no huge expectations on Williams, which is why when they score 11 championship points and are seventh in the championship, it looks like a great step forward, really, really good. You know, that would be disastrous for a top team. But actually for Williams, after the, the very low baseline they've come from, you know, that's been a step in the right direction. Um, it is interesting that, you know, he's been, he's been very open about the fact that the team needs to invest in lots of areas, that there are a lot of legacy systems. Legacy attitudes as well, legacy ways of doing things, all of which have to change. And he is right. Culture isn't going to change because he says it. Culture is going to change because he changes that over time. Systems and processes and technology are going to change through investment, through moving from those analog, mechanical, uh, you know, human-oriented systems into things that are much more technologically driven. Um, which, of course, he will have seen firsthand at Mercedes, what needs to be done on that front. So there's obviously investment there to be to be made, lots of changes to take place. Um, and then to see what happens next. And, I mean, I've, I've written um, a column recently about the fact that, you know, Williams and McLaren are two teams which face the 2026 era without a car manufacturer behind them, so running customer engines. I don't think that's a particular issue for James Valls 
at the present time. And of course, looking at McLaren's performance, you'd have to say at the moment, customer engines aren't exactly a bad thing to have. But uh, but nevertheless, the point is there are some st- long-term structural things that Williams need to, to look at. But in the short to medium term, he's got a clear vision of fixes that he needs to make. The appointment of, of Pat Fry, I nearly said Nick Fry there, but Pat Fry, the appointment of... <laughs> that would be a different matter. That would be a very different matter. But the appointment of, of, of uh, Pat Fry, excellent move, excellent, excellent move. And, and I'm not surprised that James Vales is happy about that. And, you know, I think with those changes to the way they do things internally, also the changes in ambition, because I think, as a, going back to Vales' point about he knows what excellence looks like. He will also be eager to set ambitious goals, you know, to get the team moving forward and to to try and tick off the, the steps towards towards achieving that. And uh, and then just, you know, finally, uh, you know, as Matt as Matt's mentioned, the fact that Vals un- understands that it's important for Williams to start taking a short, medium, and ter- long term look. You know, where do we? Yes. How do we want to run the next race? That's that's natural. But where does the organization want to be next season? And where does it want to be in 2026 with the new rules? So taking taking a longer term run at things and having a vision of what they want to achieve and putting in place the people in the processes that are going to get them there. So a very interesting interview with the guy. Uh, really interesting that the two of you, you know, as as journalists within Formula One are impressed with your interaction with him, you know, the fact that he comes across very credibly, very well, that he's taking time to engage with the media, you know, that's clearly all part of an, a, an important strategy. And I think it'll be interesting in the fullness of time to see how he finds that side of his job, that he's no longer a technician, but he's a leader. Um, and of course, he did have a leadership role at, at Mercedes within the strategy group. But nevertheless, he now has to deal with all the stakeholders and he has to deal with shareholders. He has to deal with sponsors. He has to deal with the FIA. He has to deal with the media. He has to deal with uh, tier one suppliers. He has to deal with drivers. There's there's a lot of complexity in his role. And uh, I'm sure it's uh, it's demanding, but he certainly seems to be an ambitious guy, he's well up for it. So I think a good choice, certainly looks like a great choice by Matthew Savage at uh, at Doralton to bring uh, James Vales in. I often wonder if Matthew Savage is a case of nominative determinism. We'll see if um, this project is deemed to be failing. <laughs> anyway, I, I can I can tell the, the 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 counter in front of me tells me that this podcast is deemed to be starting to creep over the hour mark in which case um, I, I get hung drawn and quartered by people who think it should be less than an hour so it is time to draw proceedings to a close um, uh, Mark thank you very much for your contributions we can release you to the joys of Rotterdam and to those um, lint chocolate balls you've got behind you Oh yes, I you spotted those, did you? I would, I would um, happily share them if that was possible in the virtual. <laughs> Reach through the screen, <laughs> uh, and uh, Matt Q, um, thank you very much. Let Let's hope that you can find some less triggering artwork in the coming weeks. Oh, uh, I'll do my best. Actually, a, a slight aside, I had to, it was my parents' fortieth wedding anniversary. I went to an art shop in town to get uh, get them something. 
and I noticed loads of F1 pictures on the wall so I got talking to them and they'd done some work for various commissions but anyway the, la- the lad of the shop owner has his first uh, pictures appearing in Autosport magazine in, in this week's issue so that's a, a nice little uh, local aside oh, yeah. there so basically oh, okay. long story short hopefully he'll offer me some cheap F1 pictures to sling on the wall <laughs> <laughs> We don't have anything of that ilk in Farnham, sadly. Well, um, so yeah, thanks thanks to our contributors. Thanks to you for listening. Um, you may have noticed that this podcast is associated with the world's best-selling uh, uh, Formula One magazine. Help it carry on in that status. Uh, go to gpracing.com to check out our subscriptions offers. Find out your local stockists by going to seymour.co.uk and looking at their store finder. That is Seymour, as in the very principled principle of the Simpsons we're still on the we're still riding the crest of the latest Mission Impossible film so I thought you could have referred to the 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 middle name of the actor who played the baddie in uh, uh, installment number three I've not seen that unfortunately it's uh, it's uh, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman an excellent performance Oh, a very, very good actor. Um, yeah, I've I've seen I've seen the first one obviously because I'm dead old. The second one I couldn't um, get past because that's the John Woo directed one, isn't it? Yeah, it features yeah. a motorcycle chase where there's a lot of on bike cameras and the. Um, Sorry to sound like a pedant here, but the actual type of tyre changes from a uh, a road tyre to a dirt tyre several times in a continuity-busting exercise that caused me to actually boycott the next few Mission Impossible films. We saw... Um, what, what, was, what was the previous one that had... Um, so I, I, I think we went to see it at the IMAX. So we've not, we've not seen this last one, but we saw the one before. Fallout was the most recent one. I'm glad there's another. You're you're as much of a pedant for that sort of stuff as I am. Uh, Lucy or my partner and I, we were watching about six months behind the rest of the UK. The Gold and uh, the lead coppers uh, driving round in a. I think it's a, a a Series Three Ford Granada, which came out in 1985, and the series is set in 1983. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> absolute disgrace oh don't no. we we've we've the, the 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 gold is still sitting on our skybox we've only just started watching series one of the great which um the skybox informs us uh was recorded in january 2021 uh, ladies and gentlemen other forms of um satellite receivership or tv receivership are available <laughs> unless you live in farnham and can't get the reception from the crystal palace transmitter without a massively tall aerial anyway that's it from this month for us for this month uh, we'll be with you in a few weeks time <laughs> remember gpracing.com subscribe seymour.co.uk for the store finder to find your local stockist thank you very much Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.